Welcome to my Life and Times of Video Games interview side series on the people and processes behind games history. I'm Richard Moss, and this time around, I've got the full interview that I did with Andrew Borman for the season four finale, The Ghosts of Games That Never Were. So Andrew is not only one of the world's leading experts on cancelled and unreleased games, as you were hearing about in that episode, but he's also a digital games curator at the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. These two things together pretty much means that he lives and breathes games preservation. Now in the interview you're about to hear, which was recorded on January 14th, 2021, Andrew and I talk deeply about his interests, his insights, excitement, challenges, and research into games that weren't, with special highlights including the story behind cancelled Halo and Elder Scrolls spin-off games. I hadn't planned on this interview being a standalone thing before we talked, so I didn't ask as many questions about his museum work as I otherwise might have. But we still do talk a bunch about the strong, the value of institutional backing when researching games history, and the expansion that they have underway at the moment to make more room for showing their incredible collection off to the world. So here is our full discussion, trimmed down slightly, edited, and just generally tidied up to make the conversation easier on your ears. Enjoy. I, I know you you work at the the Strong Museum now, but you've been running this P two P online website turned YouTube channel for like fifteen years, maybe more now. Um, yeah. How did you? get interested in tracking down and documenting this information about uh, unreleased and cancelled games and prototype games? And why is it a passion? Yeah, so for me, uh, growing up, uh, you know, there was no big internet resource out there. Uh, so I really relied on the magazines that I could get my hands on. Uh, and that often wasn't many. Uh, I'd make it a handful of magazines every year. Uh, so the ones that I think back to that that really influenced us were the ones with Resident Evil 2 in it. Uh, that's kind of got that huge story of they're making the game, they, they put it out there, they showed it at shows, it was a few months away from release, and then they decided it didn't quite meet uh, their expectations for what, what a Resident Evil game could or should be. Uh, so they essentially scrapped the large majority of the game. Meanwhile, I'm carrying around my old Game Pro and my old other magazines that have uh, a real mix of screenshots in it. Uh, that, that was one of the things looking back. It would be a mix of the old version, which had Leon Kennedy still, but then Elsa Walker instead of Claire Redfield and a totally different looking Raccoon City police station. So you'd get that mix. And I'd be like, OK, this is interesting. I, I want to play this game. I'd already played the first. Then I go down to play it. I played the demo as well. And by the time I'm done, I'm thinking to myself, there are scenes from the magazine that aren't in the game. I specifically think of the screenshots with uh, the, the zombie hands coming out of the jail cell. That, to me, was like the iconic moment in the magazines, and it wasn't in there. So it would take a few years from there before it really started to progress into to any meaningful uh, kind of interest. But there were various moments like that along the way. Uh, so then, really, 2003-ish, uh, I was interested in the Xbox uh, in particular. And 
you know, I, I started to see all these games that were changing in development in a way that uh, was much more apparent because we had the internet at that point. And then you start to hear about games that are canceled. And, and to me, I started thinking, what's happening to these games? Why is it happening? What's the story there? And even though those ideas weren't quite as concrete to me then as they are now, it started to bring that interest forward. So there were other websites out there doing it, but but I had really hoped to be able to create some sort of thing where I could focus solely on that sort of media, specifically for newer games compared to some others like Frank Cifaldi, who are already looking at NES games. As much as I love the NES, you know, people were doing that. Uh, so I was able to, to start looking into prototypes for that system pretty early on, 2004, 2005. Uh, I was still in high school, so 16, 17 years old. And from there, it just kind of took off, uh, you know, looking into Halo 2 uh, led to playing some of the early alpha and beta builds for the multiplayer uh, and all sorts of canceled games that have come since then. And to me, what's most interesting is trying to focus not on necessarily the negatives. It's a game that wasn't done for one reason or another. Sometimes it's because it's bad. Sometimes it's not. Uh, but trying to tell the story of the people that were working on these games as much as possible, knowing that they're locked behind NDAs a lot of the time, and trying to tell what was and where they were going with it if they had been able to complete their vision. It's just such a fascinating story because they worked on these things sometimes months or years only to then have the game canceled, sometimes without us ever hearing about it. So Mm -hmm. that's the short version. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking when you say you you want to tell their stories it'd be very very difficult to when on the one hand you've got these people who they can't say anything legally uh, unless they they kind of on the sly anonymously uh, leak the information and then you also the on the other hand you have the people who just they can't remember because the thing got cancelled and so it didn't sort of register necessarily as a major life moment yeah, I mean, as I've talked to developers over the years, uh, you, you find out that a game being canceled is really a common thing. Sometimes for some developers, they've had more games canceled than games that have actually come out, which I, I find to be fascinating. Uh, but there, I find when I'm talking to developers, even if it's anonymous, even if it's off the record for the time being, they want to share that story. They want to get it right. Even if they can't share screenshots or other information, they want to at least give some background to to try to make sure whatever I'm already doing is accurate. Because oftentimes I'll go to a developer and say, I've already found this game. I'm going to publish something about it, whether it's a video or something more in depth. Uh, can you help? And, and a lot of times they will, but a lot of times you just don't hear back. And that's just part of the deal. Mm. And you seem to focus mainly or almost exclusively around this sort of ps2 xbox era onwards why is that uh part of it was that it was cheaper (laughs) quite frankly and and i was growing up with the xbox the ps2 primarily in you know late middle school high school age uh but the nes collectors that were out there the super nes uh, atari collectors uh they already were paying a lot of money for a lot of these things so it was hard to to really track down anything that would be significant in any way shape or form meanwhile you know even on a high schooler who works part-time budget i was able to buy prototypes to games like counter-strike to to other xbox hits for cheaper than the game originally cost sometimes uh so there's that 
And then there's also the fact that nobody else was doing it. So it gave me an opportunity to to explore things that, you know, I wasn't going to run into as many roadblocks in terms of actually acquiring something. Uh, that's changed since then, of course. But there is that. And also it's just easier in a lot of ways. You know, when you're talking about cartridge-based prototypes, uh, cartridges have a cost involved. And that means there's going to be less of them. Uh, with CD-based, DVD-based games, uh, you know, it was $20 for 50 DVDs back in the day. Uh, so it was a lot easier to find a lot of these things, and more versions were made and kept. Uh, so you're able to really track the progress of certain games a lot more easily, especially as those copies went to more press outlets, more elsewhere, more copies escaped with developers, because nobody was keeping track of a DVD-R compared to a cartridge back in the day. Hmm. Uh, so as you sort of touched on here, um, there's a lot of people who who look for this stuff, who try and track it down. There's people who uh, don't try and track it down, but they're just like clamoring for information about this or that cancelled game, obsessing over the details of what would have been or getting upset that something was removed that was in a prototype. <laughs> and there are lots of websites and communities dedicated to tracking down this stuff and sharing it. What do you think it is that that so captures such a wide variety of people and a large number of people? Yeah, I, for me, it was the fact that game development was, and really still is, kind of a, a secret. Uh, a lot of what goes into making a game isn't well known, even for things that are now 40 years old. Uh, I think there's that element of you're seeing behind the curtain to something that you aren't meant to see uh, in some way. I, I always equated it to deleted scenes in movies or early versions of scripts. You know, that's the same sort of interest that people have in video games. So for me, that was really what, what drove me forward. Uh, but there is sort of that that interesting idea of what could have been. Why did they remove this thing? Uh, was this thing better in some way, shape, or form? Could we have gotten a game that was completely different as with Resident Evil 2? Uh, I think it's fascinating to see where those decisions went. And a thing like a prototype gives you at least some glimpse uh, into some of those decisions that were made, even if, as I've learned over the years, as I've done this enough, you know, you don't always have the proper context to truly understand why that decision was made, just that a decision was made. Uh to, to kind of put a finer point on this, uh, you, as you say, there's a lot of mystery uh, in the public uh, around how game development works and a real fundamental lack of understanding about the processes of testing out these different ideas, the, th the very things that lead to cancelled games and, and many, many prototypes. Uh, what do you think is getting in the way here? Sometimes I think it's not wanting to give away an idea. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, ideas that show up in what we know about Nintendo prototypes and that sort of thing show up in later games in some way, shape, or form. Uh, sometimes I, I've heard developers who are just sad uh, about a game that got canceled or a feature that got cut. And I've had a few tell me that they'd rather not talk about it because of that. But I also think it's a, an industry that's fiercely competitive, uh, even more so in today's day and age, where you have 
you know, TV sometimes, movies sometimes, but now you have Netflix, you have Hulu, you have YouTube, and you still have video games, but you have video games on your phone. You have all these different sources of entertainment competing. You don't necessarily want to give away that secret that may be the thing that propels you or your company into whatever the next step is. And I don't think the game industry has opened their doors quite as much yet to that sort of behind the scenes look. You, you did start to see it some, you know, with behind the scenes documentaries, but it's a very controlled thing where they're showing you very little when you look at it closely. But I think there's been a, a greater openness to doing so. Uh, you know, here at The Strong, we've been able to work with companies like Activision and Microsoft to preserve parts of their history here at the museum where we can make it publicly accessible on site, whether that's to the guests that are coming to the museum or to researchers here. So I think about we ha we have a huge collection of Skylanders material from Toys for Bob and Activision, cataloging everything from the initial uh, portals that you put the figures on, one of which is a, essentially a, an electric electronic board with a paper bowl that you use for like camping or something on top of it uh to early prototype figures to uh the uh, sample of molds that they use to actually make the figures to of course retail packaging and they allowed uh staff from the museum to interview key people from uh toys for bob so i do think there is that openness that is growing uh but we haven't seen it quite take grip in the the biggest way possible that said we're always working on some cool things so uh i think people will be surprised just how much companies are open to the idea of sharing things that uh traditionally has been a secret mm. yeah you're very lucky in your job sometimes getting getting to see All and the do these things <laughs> it's a would be wonderful to to have that kind of the institutional power behind you yeah, I mean, I think it's really important because, you know, there's a lot of value that comes from being at an institution that's been around for decades already and has funding to be around for decades more, even if we have something like COVID. Like, I was never concerned that the museum would permanently close, which is uh, something that a lot of museums and institutions can't say. So I know we're very fortunate. Uh, and that has the benefit of when we go to talk to developers. Uh, that has a lot of power knowing that your collection isn't going to end up unused. It's going to be processed. It's going to be held hopefully long past the time where I'm gone. Uh, so that helps with some of that openness that we're starting to see, especially the past couple of years. Mm. And I, I really hope that we can get past COVID uh, sometime eventually. And for, for many reasons, but one of the reasons, the reason I mention it right now is the, the very personal uh, selfish reason that I want to go to New York. My my brother lives in New York and okay. I want to go to Rochester and <laughs> visit the museum and, and maybe Absolutely. even like do a research placement there, a fellowship or just hang out for a couple of days because you've got yeah, so I much mean, stuff. That's one of the great things that we do is, you know, we're really open. We've had anybody from uh, people working on books, podcasts, that sort of thing, but also YouTubers. We've had super fans that come behind the scenes to do research, not just in our public areas. Uh, and we offer research fellowships to help make that possible. Uh, so we, we've really done a lot to, to make our collection accessible. We don't want to just be holding on to things just to hold on to things. But we want to put them out there in a way that's legally allowed. and. Uh, 
accessible to as many people as possible. Uh, so we, we are a bit far from New York City, but if anybody wants to visit Niagara Falls, we're not close. We're not far from there. Uh, you know, we're, we're fairly close to Toronto if you're in Canada. A uh, few hours, five hours or so from New York City, and I could go into all the other places. But uh, you know, driving in America is kind of what you come to expect. <laughs> now, um, we, we've talked about uh, wh- why you're interested and why um, people are interested. But why does this stuff matter? Like from a historical perspective um what do you think uh, is important about uncovering these cancelled games and prototype games and things part of it is that like i was mentioning earlier these are games that are sometimes worked on for years uh and it's not just games from developers you've never heard of it's big name developers uh that's a a big part of somebody's career if you've worked on it a large period of time and to add to that, you have to look at it in the larger context of what a company, what an individual developer is making over the course of their career. Some of those canceled projects lead to something that's really great. Uh, I mentioned Resident Evil 2, but you know that's one of the best games of all time. And I don't know if it would have been quite that good had what we call Resident Evil 1.5 not existed in the past. And I think that sort of information that that you gain through a project, whether it's completed or not, provides huge value to our knowledge base. What makes a game good uh, can come from it. What makes a game bad could come from it. Uh, But also just tricks, learning new tools. There's so much knowledge that can come from a canceled game. Uh, Because really, like I was kind of hinting at, a game isn't necessarily canceled because it's bad. It could be canceled because it didn't meet expectations, which is a different thing. It could be canceled because of political reasons, uh, budgetary reasons. Uh, Sometimes it's just uh, kind of the political reason of somebody at a publisher doesn't like your company. There are any number of reasons, so it's not necessarily that a game is bad. So there is a lot that you can learn from a game because some of them are really, really good. Mm. Yeah, and on on that note, uh, we've got... A big story at the moment in the in the games world with Tomb Raider Anniversary Edition, the the core design version that probably was cancelled for political reasons, as uh, Crystal Dynamics built this competing uh, prototype, and we may never know exactly what happened behind the scenes there. But uh, you, you mentioned you guys got sent a, a copy of that stuff. What are your thoughts on this one? I love this kind of alternate history of, of competing projects. Uh, that one goes back to the Xbox days, because if you know Xbox history, you had the Xbox team, but you also had the web TV team. So we could have been playing on web TV consoles. <laughs> uh, so to know that there is a, a big name Tomb Raider game out there, which Tomb Raider was inducted into our World Video Game Hall of Fame a few years ago, so that has extra meaning. It's really cool to see this look at a, a game that, really had a, a very similar concept. It was the idea of an anniversary-based game, but it's very different to actually see and to play, which I've only played it a little bit. Uh, it's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's, it's really intriguing the, the different approaches they had. Like The idea at core, and I've, I've talked to um, Gavin Rummery, who was running the studio at the time, because um, I did a full of core design article a few years ago, and he kind of mentioned it on the slide as this thing. This is 
back when we didn't have much knowledge about it. But uh, they were trying to do their remake on top of the original level geometry. So they were they were importing the old levels into their new editor, and right. on top of that, building the new stuff, making some changes, sure, to the geometry. But essentially, it was those original levels underneath all this uh, fancy new graphical stuff and and um, different movement uh, because the it wasn't on a grid, or at least the version that's leaked wasn't yet on a grid. Uh, and so Lara's moving around quite differently. So that's a very different approach to Crystal Dynamics, which remade it from scratch, uh, reinterpreted the original level ideas. And uh, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, it's, like you said, it'll probably be a mystery exactly what happened, uh, whether they're just keeping it a secret, don't want to talk about it, or they, they've forgotten some of the details. Uh, but the fact that it exists, at all it's always exciting to see something like that turn up Mm. and it's fun looking at how they were trying to uh, uh, pivot when when idos said sorry we're giving this to crystal dynamics uh they didn't give up they tried to pivot they made an indiana jones prototype and then they made a a national treasure prototype some other licensed thing that they thought might be able to happen but then, yeah, that that's a pretty common process in game development, especially if there's been quite a bit of work put into it. Uh, we may talk about this later, but the Halo Mega Blocks game uh, was turned into something else. Uh, I've seen, I, I found years ago a demo called Sonic Extreme, which was a skateboarding hoverboard game <laughs> that turned into a different game. Uh, so, so that happens a lot, where you take the same base content, pop in a new character, maybe change a few assets. Uh, but I mean, it makes sense to, to try to find some value out of something you've already invested so much time into. Mm. And, uh, on the subject of the PSP, which was the target platform of anniversary, you mentioned the Elder Scrolls Oblivion PSP game in your email. Uh, And that's a a very enticing idea. Um, Can you tell me about that? Absolutely. So, so this one was exciting because, uh, it was being made around, started around the time that the PS3 version of Oblivion was in development. Uh, it was made by a company called Climax in the UK. They're still around, uh, but for a while, they were actually a fairly big studio with multiple branches. They had their racing branch or their action branch. They had a, a company that was working on uh, Warhammer Online for a while there in the early 2000s. A different version then would eventually come out. Uh, so it's a fairly you know, big company, all things considered, uh, they had pitched this initially as something that was much closer to Oblivion, the console version, but that wasn't really the direction that Bethesda wanted to go. And realistically on the PSP, that wasn't, uh, possible. <laughs> the whole idea of a, a big open environment, uh, was hard on PSP and, and few companies pulled it off, you know, namely rockstar pulled it off, but I think few surprises there with the budgets that they have. Uh, so that got into to development, hoping to link back to the console version in some way like other PSP games were doing. But one of their, their problems really started early on in development. Uh, there weren't that many choices at the time for middleware solutions, so engines that they could use. And, and they had traditionally been a studio that made a lot of their own engines. 
Uh, so they went into this thinking that they would use uh, the engine that they had under development already for uh, Silent Hill Origins, which that version would be canceled too, and started with what they called their Bomb Dog engine, uh, which was loosely based on some Quake 3 era, uh, at least for the the uh, level meshes initially and level editing. Turns out that developing a game alongside technology is very, very difficult. So that already put them at this kind of negative uh so they did eventually switch to renderware which they had used successfully on ghost rider and for a while for a couple months anyway things went okay uh and it became that it's more of a companion piece to oblivion the the console game and was telling the story of oh oblivion gates weren't just opening around the areas of the console game but they're opening in other areas that you may have heard of, including Daggerfall and other areas that hadn't been seen in over a decade. As time went on, uh, it became apparent that they're, uh, they were new to renderware for that particular team for making a game that they wanted to do, but they were going okay. Uh, but some of the outsourcing that they were doing wasn't quite meeting expectations, so they were having to go back and redo a lot uh, of that work that was being done. Uh, then as things started to drag on even more, they started to look at it and say, you know, we have to start cutting areas, so areas like Daggerfall were suddenly out of the game. That went on until early 2007, uh, and they did make a lot of areas. There was going to be this hub world that served instead of the open world as the place that you would go off to all these different parts of the world. Uh, they had the communication systems in place, the battle system in place, item management, uh, some basic level ups, and it felt really good, all things considered. But somewhere around February, that's where progress really slowed. A, a much smaller team then worked on a kind of vertical slice demo. They had a combat demo and they had a uh, quest demo, uh, which is one of the later versions. That was worked on for another, I would say, four months uh, before the game was eventually canceled. Uh, And that was a a really big hit to them. Uh, They had already had issues on Silent Hill Origins, which they managed to to come out of with a game that was pretty good. Uh, It may not be up to Silent Hill standards, but it's it's pretty good. Uh, And then they went on to work on some other games. Uh, one another big one that was canceled was Legacy of Cain, uh, Dark Sun, and what has led to is they're a much smaller studio. So that series of canceled games can can really catch up to a developer very very quickly. Yeah, and uh, occasionally, uh, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of an example, but occasionally it'll kill a studio entirely yep. that that they're working on something big. Publisher pulls the plug they can't afford to go on yeah it happens a lot so it's unfortunate because then you know everybody kind of scatters to the wind a big one that comes up is another game that i helped kind of reveal other than a trailer that i leaked previously star wars battlefront 3 uh that was made by free radical design and when that was canceled after hayes had already come out and not done so well uh that was the end of free radical and yes assets were bought up by i think crytech uh, but unfortunately, you know, Free Radical Design, who had made Time Splitters, uh, was made up of uh, alumni from Rare. You know, that's another studio that split up because of a high-profile canceled game, and they were already working on a sequel, <laughs> which is even more fascinating in its own way. 
Mm. Yeah, and then when I when I think about the ghosts of games that never were, which is a lovely poetic thing that I took from Terry Greer's website, uh, I thought that was much nicer than uh, like Frank Gasking's games that weren't or Unseen yeah. Sixty Four. These these other ones, I thought that's nice poetry there. I I actually also in addition to thinking of these thing cancelled things and the prototypes that never went anywhere, I think of games like Duke Nukem Forever and Tomb Raider Angel of Darkness games that they had a vision and they went off in a different direction to that vision for whatever reason, usually because the developer kind of, they got stuck in this, in this cycle of trying to fix things. I'm wondering if you have any any thoughts on on this. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that uh, I, I see often with some developers is, is the idea that they don't really know if they have a game that's good until it's almost done. <laughs> so, so sometimes there is a bit of that veering off course that goes on, uh, but sometimes it is a, a very different situation where they, they just they're making the game and what came out is what came out for better or worse. There are cases though, where that's actually extremely beneficial. Uh, I was able to find uh, a version of until dawn, which came out on PS4, but this was a PS3 version of the game. And it was very different. uh, This particular version that I found same kind of story, you know, haunted something going on. You're not really sure. But instead of third person, it was first person. And you were using the PlayStation Move controllers to to shine your flashlight around. Uh, when it works, I thought it worked really well. Because, you know, the idea of moving a flashlight around to see things uh, was really cool to, to highlight objects in the environment. But that's a case where uh, it was clear that something wasn't working. Uh, they they had that that story. They had the feel down, but it never felt quite right. And in this case, unlike Duke Nukem Forever, where you know the product that came out didn't match, I don't think any of what they had hoped to have done in some way. Until Dawn benefited from that, mm. and that reminds me also of Halo, where there's this really common misunderstanding among the fans that it was supposed to be a third person strategy tactics game which was never the idea it's just they had a prototype that was sort of like that but yeah right. that, that reminds me of that where they pivoted to first person shooter because they realized well this is actually what we're making right exactly and i think even the story of halo as much as been, been told i think there's a lot left to uncover there from, from the way the story developed uh and just the characters and yet, even in those early, you know, strategy game, and I use that term loosely, prototypes, <laughs> uh, it still looks like Halo. So, mm. so they they knew they had something in that case, and I think that's the same for Until Dawn. I think that's the same even for a game like Duke Nukem Forever. They knew they had something. They just uh, don't necessarily get to where they want to go, or it takes some time. Yeah, and to to veer off topic for for a minute, uh, I've. I've been noticing in the background your, your Power Macintosh uh, poster, it looks like. Oh, the one to this side. Yeah. There's the Think Different poster that's over there. Uh, so that actually came from a, a collection from a local Rochester-based developer. 
he was a big Apple, going back to Apple two days, uh, developer. Uh, he did work on a game that I, I have not revealed yet in a big deal, uh, but it's a canceled game uh, made by some Rochester developers called Right Island. Uh, and it was to be a word processing game that would teach you how to, to do word processing. You'd have your avatar, which they were really forward thinking. This was back in the early 80s. They, they really wanted to be a diverse cast of avatars you could choose from, everything from color to this, uh, of your skin to even an avatar that's in a wheelchair. That was all something that they worked on. Uh, but he actually worked at Kodak a lot, uh, made a bunch of technologies that we use, including some that went into games either directly or indirectly in the form of image processing and that sort of thing. Uh, but he donated a big collection of software which included Apple developer CDs and DVDs going back, you know, probably 10 years worth, Power Max, uh, all sorts of computers, iMacs, iBooks, and some great posters. He, he actually tells a story of meeting Jim Henson and not realizing it was Jim Henson until later. <laughs> uh, so he, he had the Jim Henson think different poster as well, but held on to it for now, which uh, I can't blame him. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I probably would too. Are you uh, aware that I I wrote this book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming? I, I was actually looking at that, and I haven't read it yet, but it's uh, on my list of things that I would like to read. Uh, if I move my camera around, I know nobody's going to see it. Uh, there's actually uh, an old Apple uh, knitted hat down there. There's some of the <laughs> WWDC uh, t-shirts, including the, the Stump the Apple Expert shirts. Uh, lots of really cool stuff hiding down there. <laughs> Very nice. And uh, I, to, to go um, sort of back on topic, uh, I'm actually, I'm working on a, a second volume, well, not really working on a second volume right now because I have to finish my current book, um, Shareware <laughs> Heroes, Independent Games at the Dawn of the Internet. A bit of a mouthful, that title. But uh, I'm currently writing that. But I had started before I, I got into writing the manuscript on doing a second volume. And one of the stories I had hoped to tell that it looks like I won't be able to is actually a cancelled Mac game that... Ambrosia Software announced in the late 90s called Mansum, Mansum, I don't know how to pronounce that, <laughs> but M-A-N-S-E. And uh, I got in touch with the developer and he basically told me, yeah, I'll do an interview with you as long as we don't talk about that game. <laughs> Great. Which is, it sucks, but... All he has been able, been willing to tell me so far about this cancelled thing is that uh, it it went sour. Uh, the relationship went sour with with Ambrosia, and that's all we really know. We have a couple of screenshots and uh, some preview early, really early previews in Ambrosia's newsletter, and then these two sentences that he told me over email about the game. <laughs> Which is unfortunate. It was supposed to be, it was like a, a Mac first-person shooter and adventure thing. Um, it sounded like it had some parallels to um, what Bungie was doing in, in sure. that era. Um, but with a, with a slightly different flavor, with a 
someone else's as take on on this idea and it seemed like it was going to be a really cool game but unfortunately when i guess we're never going to see anything of it yeah it's always a bit hard when, when you get into those situations because you know you're trying to do it right you're trying to tell the right story and especially on some of the early games which i've since branched out to here at the museum having uh different interests sometimes uh you know that there's only a few people that can tell that story. Sometimes only one person that can tell that story. Uh, so you, it's hard not to take it personally sometimes where they where they tell you, you know, I really don't want to talk about it. Like, I understand. At the same time, you know, I, I wish I could tell that story. Mm. Yeah. Which, uh, outside of cancelled games, I, I dealt with in doing this new book that I'm working on where I got in touch with Mike Denio, who did Captain Comic which was mm-hmm. a very influential early shareware game. And he said, no, I, I, I won't talk about it. That's in the past. Uh, I have great memories about this. I have a box of stuff that I've held on to, which that really is like, ah, you've got to share this <laughs> stuff. But I don't care about it anymore. I, I want to leave that all in the past. Uh, it's just happy memories for me. And to politely told me to go away <laughs> well if you ever contact them again i know a place that that deals with boxes of stuff and it may be where i'm sitting right now uh, <laughs> we we do even you know with, with all the developers that we deal with we we do have that issue sometimes of you know we, we want to contact you especially pioneers that haven't necessarily been recognized as pioneers we want to help you tell that story we're going to tell that story in some way shape or form we'd love if you could help us with it to do a better job uh especially since so little of it is documented sometimes but even we get turned down and it's always difficult because we we want to do it justice we we don't want it to disappear we don't want to hear 20 years from now oh i i threw that in the trash uh it's it's always sad when that happens yeah I suspect that uh, you may have already told one or two of them, but what are your favorite stories of canceled and unreleased games that you have actually been able to collect? So there's a couple that come to mind. Uh, One is uh, a game based on the Stargate TV show, uh, Stargate SG-1, The Alliance. Uh, This was one of the other games that really helped pull me into this sort of world more than I was doing you know, I just got into Stargate. I was in college at that point. Uh, I'm like, why isn't there a good game for the series? It's so ripe for it. You've got, at the time, I think eight seasons, plus three of a spinoff, plus you had the original movie. And yes, I'd played the original movie game growing up. It wasn't great. But here's this game. They they used assets from the game in an episode of the TV show. Uh, and yet... As I'm getting into this, I find out there was a game and it was canceled. <laughs> so it was being made for release, I think, in like late 2005 uh, using Unreal Engine 2 just to, to kind of get it into people's head. And it was supposed to be a, a canon kind of offshoot of the show. Uh, it was being made by an Australian company, Perception. Uh, and I think the publisher was uh, Australian as well, Joe Wood Productions, I think. Uh, and it was going to take place between season seven and eight of the show. 
They had the actors digitally scanned, which is a, a relatively new thing for 2004, 2005 that they were working on it. You had all the voice actors from the show uh, come in and do voices, some of whom have since passed away, unfortunately. But that's a game where, where there, there are multiple things that ended up leading to its cancellation. It was good. You know, it was never going to be the next Halo or anything like that. But it was good, especially for a licensed game. Uh, it was incomplete even in 2005. But there were two big things that were working against it. One was that Perception claimed that they had the exclusive license to Stargate SG-1 for video games. Uh, the publisher said that they had the exclusive rights to SG-1 uh, and any sort of Stargate video games. Uh, and they weren't 100% happy with how the game was coming out. Uh, so this led to a lawsuit. In the end, it turns out that, no, Perception was the ones that had the license. Uh, but by the time that lawsuit was over, it was 2007. Uh, so this is a game that was being made primarily for PC. That's what they wanted to do. Then there was an Xbox version as a concession. And that was okay compared to the PC version. That version is actually leaked online. The PC one is not. Uh, but when you compare the two, uh, the Xbox version is very stripped back. You're talking about a system with 64 megabytes of memory compared to even you know 256 or 512 on, on a more typical PC of the time. So it led to them cutting that into chunks. On top of that, after they were already in development, they were forced to work on a PS2 version, uh, which if the Xbox was limiting, uh, the PS2 version was so bad that even the developers I talked to didn't want to talk about the PS2 version. It wasn't something that they wanted to do. But in doing so, I was able to, to talk to multiple people and actually get a development build of the PC version, which, like I mentioned, is incomplete. Uh, and do I've recorded most of the levels so that they're online. It crashes a lot. It only runs on Windows XP. Uh, lots of issues with it. But that's good. The other big issue of that was, you know, if it's late 2005, Okay, you can get the game out. It can do okay on Xbox. It can do okay on PS2. Uh, but late 2005 is where the 360 launches. As you start to realize that, no, the game's not going to make 2005 or into 2006, then you're starting to talk about the PS3 coming. Uh, you know, the Wii is coming, which really wouldn't impact things too much there. But, you know, it's coming. And also Unreal Engine 3 is coming. Uh, so the combination of the game just not being far enough along and that lawsuit really hurt things a lot. Hmm. I'm sure it would. Yeah. So I can talk about another one. I, I, I think I've now asked everything I wanted to. So you can okay. tell one more story if you, if you like. Absolutely. So this one's a bit of a, of a, a shorter story comparatively. So this happened right before I joined the museum. So if you go to youtube.com slash PDP online, I'll still put things on there occasionally, uh, but that's not my focus now. I'm not collecting now. Uh, anything that I post there is stuff that I've found in my collection that already exists or things that end up you know, on the internet. Uh, so one of the last things I did was I, I was contacted by somebody who, who lived in an area where a developer went out of business and uh, they ended up with a few Xbox 360 development kits. Not unheard of. Uh, but they had this game that 
booted up to a screen called Hagar, H-A-G-G-A-R. And they essentially came to me and said, what is this? Can you help me figure out what this game is? Uh, Booting it up, it's clear what it was supposed to be. It's a Halo game based on their Mega Bloks line, which is like Lego uh, of toys. Uh, But nobody had ever heard of this game in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I'm thinking to myself, oh, maybe it's a prototype of some kind, but it looks pretty nice. Like, this isn't a game that was just a weekend project for somebody. If it's a prototype, which you could still call it a prototype, even though it's basically a complete level, uh, it is done with a budget of some kind. Uh, So I started to dig around to just figure out what this thing was. Uh, And I did find one link uh, that confirmed what I'd already thought. The the person was based, I think, in Florida that found the kit. Uh, There there were other things. Uh, Essentially, it it ended up being made by a Florida-based developer, the same one that was working on... uh, Possibly the Halo DS prototype that leaked on IGN all those years ago. And it was made by, uh, oh boy, I'm forgetting the name. Of course I have it. N-Space. They, they made that, that one game for a GameCube that always comes to my mind. Uh, and it was made with Microsoft's knowledge. Uh, you know, I found one person that had posted that they had worked on this title on one of their portfolio websites. I contacted them uh, like, hey, you want to tell me any more about this? All the screenshots that, that they had matched with what I was going to show. Uh, so that tells me it didn't get terribly far into development, but a solid vertical slice prototype. But then they took down their portfolio (laughs) luckily i had saved the pages and it already had confirmed things i had thought Uh, so that was step one to knowing that i had i'm on to something here uh so i did my video it actually leaked early because i posted it i usually posted things at the time a day early on patreon because people were happy to support me and i I love all them that did that Uh, It leaked early uh so i did have to scramble and make it public Uh, what was really interesting is this doesn't normally happen. What normally happens is if I post a video that gets too much attention, I'm probably going to get the YouTube video blocked. I was prepared for that. That happens once in a while because it's their content. They don't always want your story to be out there. Instead, what was really cool is the head of 343 Industries, uh, Bonnie Ross, she came out and essentially said, yes, this was a project that we were experimenting with back at the time. Uh, I was canceled. They hope to do that sort of thing in the future. No takedown notice ever came. I never heard anything negative from Microsoft. Uh, But the fact that they uh, were able to go and do this was really impressive. Uh, And my understanding is it was about 10 months worth of work, which when you factor in, you know, getting the assets ready, all the pre-production that goes into something like that, that's pretty typical. Uh, So that was one of the more exciting things. And just to add one more little bit to that, sometime after that, I started to work at The Strong, uh, and we opened an exhibit based on an an initiative we already had uh, called Women in Games. And that was to really put focus on the the contributions that women have made to the game industry. Both the ones that you do know, people like Carol Shaw, who made River Raid, people like Bonnie Ross now, uh, but also people who 
aren't really known all that much, and we may never know their names. So thinking about uh, the the women who worked uh, at market research in Atari, they did early focus groups. This was a brand new idea for video games. But also the women who uh, worked on the factory floor assembling thousands upon thousands of arcade games, boxing consoles, all of that. Uh, so we opened an exhibit a few years ago based on that. And uh, Bonnie Ross came to the museum. Uh, so I got to meet her and be, say, you know, hey, I'm the one that made the Hagar video. She didn't say much. Uh, <laughs> but she's like, oh, that's you. And kind of smile and nod. And we talked a little bit about Halo in general. Uh, so that was just a, a really cool experience. Not only get to cover this game, but to to be like, hey, to the person directly, I, I uh, made this game. And you didn't pull my video, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's good that they that they let it just be there that that they they let the history live it's, yeah it's a very different story with companies like nintendo extremely protective yeah and that goes back to to what i the approach that i took to this is that i didn't want to pull a fast one i didn't want to say look at this game it's not done it's buggy blah 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 i come at it from a point of appreciation and i think that really does a lot when you're trying to honor the games that they made, whether they came out or not. Uh, I think that went a long way to, to allowing me to do, cover things that nobody else has. Uh, and now to be able to work at a museum doing essentially the same thing, uh, it's a dream come true. Mm. Seems like it. Yeah. I say, I could go on about this stuff for hours. There's so many stories. I actually went back before we came on together. I was just going through the, the list of games that I found like BC on Xbox, a Diddy Kong game that didn't come out the Metallica game, all these games. I'm like, I've been doing this a while. <laughs> yeah. You've been, it was impressive you know, looking, looking in preparation for the interview, looking at how long you'd been doing it and, and pulling up your old website on the internet archive and looking yeah. at that too. There's old versions of it out there. I I still can find my first website where I made a Pokemon website back when I was in fifth grade. So, again, that's 1998 into 99. Like, uh, my history is out there. I used to use, I was a school librarian before this, so I'd use that <laughs> as a teachable lesson of be careful what you put online because it's not all going to be as innocent as welcome to my Pokemon website. <laughs> That's everything I wanted to talk about and ask you. So unless there's anything you wanted to ask me 
or anything. No, I mean, like uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you you're ever this way, let us know. Uh, whether that's to do research or you're just here for a day, we're happy to to give you kind of behind the scenes tour anyway, so you get a feel. Uh, I know it's a bit of a trip for you probably, but uh, yeah, there's uh, lots to see here. I always say that there's way more here than you can possibly understand when you're looking at our website, even with all we do and all we put out. You know, I lived three hours away from here for 10 years and about four and a half hours away for the rest of my life. And even I never knew how much there is. We're actually in the middle of a big expansion right now, uh, which the two main galleries of that are video game related. One is more traditional based around a world video game hall of fame. The other is uh, kind of play your way through game history. Uh, That one's still taking shape a bit more slowly, but look at like escape rooms and that sort of thing. Uh, for me, just to give an idea of how much stuff we have, uh, there's over 550,000 objects, just objects in the museum, everything from tiny doll houses and that sort of thing. through video games, arcade machines, about 65,000 of those are related to video games in some way. So games, console, manual, uh, hardware. Then we have our library and archives which has 220,000 volumes of books, magazines, press releases. Then our archives has our you know, game development documentation that you would absolutely love to see. Uh, and even a week, you'll get through a few boxes. There's so much more than that. Uh, <laughs> the reason I mentioned the number of objects is because we currently have two storage areas, uh, if you don't count my office anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so one of them is the one that was here when the museum was built. The other one was a previous expansion. They are large spaces. This expansion will have a third storage space that will be primarily dedicated to video games. Uh, that's how many things we have. Is they're big rooms. You, you think like Raiders of the Lost Ark, that sort of thing. <laughs> Maybe not that big, but it feels that way when you know that there's hundreds of years worth of toy and video game history here. Uh, so if you're around, we're happy to show you. And if not, you can always reach out. We're, we're happy to do more things like this. We do have a library and archives email. Sometimes it costs money to have them scan things for you versus you mm. coming with your phone. But there's lots to see, and we're happy to help people. We want this to be accessible. Mm, that's good to know. Yeah. I... And there are Macintosh games. You know, that collection is growing. So there's who knows how many. <laughs> and shareware games. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> there's stuff that I, even I don't know about. There's things that are mentioned like, uh, from one of my colleagues, they'll be talking about some collection we have. And I'm like, we have that since when? Oh, like <laughs> six years ago. Like, okay. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It just, it sounds like a, a dream to, to be able to wander those halls. You know, sometimes I wonder if I died like three or four years ago and this is like my heaven that I get to just do this. <laughs> it's, it's crazy sometimes. Just the things that we do the people we talk to then you get to flex all different muscles doing exhibits is like so exciting for me i'm a big disney world nut so like doing that sort of thing sometimes on a a budget uh is really fun whether it's video displays or partnering with local developers to make interactives or our own staff we do most of our stuff in-house like it's amazing it's not even just you know getting stuff it's everything else My thanks again to Andrew Borman for sharing his insights about the fascinating world of cancelled, unreleased and prototype games, and a bit of his life 
working at one of the coolest museums in the world. If you'd like to watch any of his videos, you can find them at youtube.com slash p2p online. That's all one word, youtube.com slash p2p online. You can also learn more about the strong and the amazing work they do there at museumofplay.org. Andrew is on Twitter at Borman18. He often tweets about his game's history findings, so he's a good follow. I'll have links to all of these and much of the stuff we spoke about in the interview in the episode notes, which you can always find at my website, lifeandtimes.games. As a reminder, this interview is part of a new series I'm running alongside the usual documentary and narrative style stuff that is the show's bread and butter. Since I started doing these interviews, I've I've talked to the people behind Schmuppelations, the CRPG Addict, and the Obscuratory, and I've also talked to Kelsey Lewin from the Video Game History Foundation, and Sam Dyer from Bitmap Books, and I have lots more planned for the future. If you have any suggestions or requests for people you would like to hear me talk to, hit me up on Twitter. You can use Life and Times VG or Mossassi, they're both me. Or email me on richard at lifeandtimes.games. And as always, if you want to throw a few bucks my way to show some financial support, you can do so through paypal.me slash or patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. Stay tuned for the season five premiere in the next couple of weeks. Then I'll, I'll have a whole lot of cool things to uh, talk about in months to come i've got uh, new book projects new audio projects and i'm even involved in a film so it's gonna be a great year until then my name is richard moss and this was a life and times video games interview special thanks for listening i'll see you